uh, 505th anniversary of the Reformation, and it is very fitting that we have this conference here on that time around. There's debate historically, was it October 30th or 31st when Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses on the castle church door at Wittenberg, but nevertheless, it's very important now when we consider such a time to go back to Scripture and ask what does the Bible say about God's institution of the local church and how important should this be for us. I just uh, want to begin in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. This is not going to be an expository message. This first session is going to be topical, but what we want to do is look at different portions of Scripture to see what does God's Word teach us concerning this subject. And I just want to start with this verse in 2 Corinthians 11. This verse, verse 28, appears in a context when Paul is mentioning the different trials and tribulations and difficulties that he faced as a minister of the gospel. And in light of all of these different trials that he was facing, he says this in verse 28, Beside those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily is what? He says, the care of the churches. So as a minister of the gospel, as a minister of the word, Paul was not a Lone Ranger Christian. The churches of God were very important to Paul the Apostle. And if they were important to Paul, they should be important to us as well. And if the, if the churches are important to God, obviously, we as, for us as Christians, uh, the church should be a very important thing for us to consider. Now, we're going to look to the Bible primarily for our understanding of the church here this morning, but I'm also uh, going to be looking at Reformed theology historically. What does Reformed theology say about the local church? And so if you are here this morning and you ascribe to Reformed theology, it's important to consider, well, what does Reformed theology historically teach about that? And I'm going to be quoting some of the early church fathers as well, and some of our own documents that we have here in our church, our own statements of doctrine, just to help us out a little bit to consider some things. You know, brethren, there are many people who call themselves Reformed who want nothing to do with a local church. But consider something. Historically, Reformed theology is not only the five points of Calvinism. But it is a system of doctrine which seeks to be faithful and balanced in properly understanding what Scripture says about any subject that it covers. And there is an entire worldview which develops in the minds of those who hold to Reformed theology. And it will distinguish itself in that way from many other systems of doctrine which exist in the church as a whole. So this morning, looking at the Christian and the local church or Reformed theology in the local church. Ultimately, our authority is not Reformed theology. Ultimately, our authority is Scripture. But yet, I hope that you'll see that this theology is an accurate understanding of what Scripture reveals concerning the local assemblies of God's people. What I want to begin with is just simply a quote from our distinctives statement that we have in this local church here. And we're going to kind of go through this. But first, we have in that statement under local church accountability, we begin by saying this. The universal church is made up of all true born-again believers. First, I want to help us to understand that. The universal church in Scripture is made up of all true born-again believers. Now, the word church in the New Testament, as you may know, is a translation of the Greek word ekklesia. And it signifies an assembly called out and met together. In reference to God's redeemed people, one of the senses in which this term is used is in reference to all those who in every part of the world possess genuine faith in Christ and a sincere belief in the gospel. It refers to all of those who have been born of the Spirit. That is the church universal. Now, there's a couple aspects concerning this church that I want to mention. Number one, we see in Scripture that it is invisible, meaning that the exact number of those in the universal church is known only to God. 
because only God can see the heart. We can't. Uh, the scripture says the Lord knows them who are his, right? So God only knows the exact number of those in this universal church. It is also Catholic. Not speaking here about Roman Catholicism, I'm talking about it is Catholic in the sense that it exists throughout the world. It is universal. The early church father in the second century, Polycarp, said it this way. He referred to this church as the whole Catholic church throughout the world. And Irenaeus, another church father from the second century, referred to it in this way. It is the church scattered throughout the whole world to the ends of the earth. The London Baptist Confession of Faith from 1689, a historic Reformed confession, puts it this way. The Catholic or universal church, which may be called invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been are or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So from all this, brethren, from Scripture, of course, but from these statements, here's what we see. The universal church is all living believers on earth. And you could also say in a general sense that it is all the elect throughout history whom Christ gave himself for. The book of Hebrews chapter 12 verse 23 speaks of this. It speaks of the general assembly and church of the firstborn which are written in heaven. So that would cover all of those whom God will redeem throughout all of history. But what I want you to do is turn with me for a moment to a few passages. If you would go to Ephesians chapter 1 just for a moment and we're just going to briefly look at these. We don't have much time to cover this subject, but just to get some basic understanding and to look at some verses where this whole understanding, this concept of the universal church appears. Here in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, verse 22, we read this as Paul writes to the Ephesians, and hath put all things under his feet, that is Christ, and gave him to be head over all things to the church. Notice the singular, the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So this body, this body of called out saints, Christ is the head of, and it is made up of all of those whom Christ is the head of. That would mean every believer throughout the world. So there's just an example of where churches use singular, referring to all believers. We just turn ahead for a moment in chapter 5. Here in chapter 5, Paul reveals to us that marriage between a man and a woman is a picture of Christ and the church. If you look at verse number 23, he says, Therefore the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Notice again, Christ is the head of the church, singular. That would be the assembly, all the whole ecclesia of God's people. Verse 25, just down a couple of verses. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. There you go again, the singular, the church. The ecclesia of God's people whom Christ gave himself for, whom Christ died for. That is the church universal. And then moving down to verse 27. That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So the goal of Christ laying down his life for the church and then sanctifying the church is that in the future, when all of the church is in a glorified state, they will have no more spot, no more wrinkle, but they will be pure before him. So here again is the church universal. And then finally, verse 32, Paul writes, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So there again, Christ and the church, the husband, the wife, picture Christ and his ecclesia. This is the body of his, his, all of his people, all believers whom he redeems. So these are all passages that are just examples of where the local church or the universal church is mentioned. Now, brethren, there is another sense, though, in which the word ecclesia is used in the New Testament. It is used as a particular assembly of saints meeting together in a place 
for worship. Now, this is a little bit different than the church universal in these ways. Remember how we said that the universal church is invisible. The number is known only to God. The local church, on the other hand, is visible. You can see everyone who is a member. You know it. I mean, even in our local church here, we gather together. Just me, for example, I'm very well aware of who all the members are, right? So it's not invisible. It's visible in that sense. Also, it is not universal. It is local, meaning this local assembly is not scattered throughout the world. It is a local group meeting together. Now, in our distinctive statement in this church, we define a local church in this way. A local church is a visible body of professing believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who manifest the scriptural evidences of regeneration, who have been baptized, who are accountable to one another, who assemble together for worship, to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to pray together, to read the scriptures together, and to be instructed in the word by the elders of the congregation. That's just a simple definition of a biblical local church. The London Baptist Confession, again, a historic Reformed confession, puts it this way, that believers are commanded to walk together in particular societies or churches for their mutual edification and the due performance of that public worship which he, that is Christ, requires of them in this world. You notice something there. A historic Reformed confession makes it very clear that scripturally speaking, Believers are commanded by God to be in local assemblies. The confession goes on to say this, The members of these churches are saints by calling, visibly manifesting and evidencing in and by their profession and walking their obedience unto that call of Christ and do willingly consent to walk together according to the appointment of Christ, giving up themselves to the Lord and one to another by the will of God. And so we see that is a wonderful description of a local church. This is Reformed theology here and the local church. Now, I read earlier from our distinctives statement, and I just want to take that and just kind of go through it and look scripturally again, what is a local church? Number one, it is a visible body of professing believers. It is not a building. I know we so have that tradition in us, right? Yeah, we're going, you know, there's the church, and we point to bricks, and we point to a building. You know, the church is not a building. The church is an assembly of professing believers. So whether they meet in a building or in the woods somewhere, it doesn't matter. The gathered group of God's people is the church. Clement of Alexandria in the late second century, a church father, he said it this way. Now it is not the place but the assemblies of the elect that I call the church. So that's the issue. It's not the place. It's the assembly. It's the people who are gathered together. Now, let me also just mention this, and this is very important, another important distinction of the universal church and the local church. The universal church, I mentioned it is invisible. It is known only to God, right? But within the universal church, it is believers only. In a local church, it is possible that although you can see all the members, but it's very possible that not all of them are genuinely converted. That is known only to God. But false professors, false converts can make a profession. They can come into the church and not be genuinely saved. That's impossible in the church universal. The church universal is only genuine believers, but that may not always be the case. In fact, I'd say it's most of the time it's not the case, sadly, in a local church. But we see many examples of these local assemblies in the New Testament. And let me just give you a few examples of this. First of all, Galatians chapter 1 and verse 2. Listen to this. Paul writes to these churches in Galatia. He says, all the brethren which are with me, they're writing to, listen, unto the churches of Galatia. So here we have, it's plural, churches in this region of Galatia. He's not saying I'm writing to the church of Galatia. It's to the churches. It's to the gathered assemblies. Let's just look at a few more examples of this. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 for a moment. Just going through different verses, which show us very clearly examples of local assemblies in the New Testament. Now here, Paul is writing concerning 
some in the church of Corinth who may have been contentious concerning what he was writing to them about. And what he writes here in verse 16, he says, But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. There it is again, plural. So he's saying, if you're being contentious about this, this is what all the other churches are doing. So there you have again, local churches, local assemblies of God's people, which are scattered about. Then if you would just flip over to chapter 14, verse number 33. Paul writes here concerning spiritual gifts and right order in the church. He says, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all churches of the saints. There again, you have different assemblies. This is plural. And this is what Paul said the practice was to be in all of these different assemblies. Look over at Colossians chapter 4. And we're going to look at verse number 16. Here you just have another example of a clear distinction of two different churches. Paul here is writing to the church at Colossae. And look what he says here about this letter that he was writing to them. He says, and when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans. So he says this letter here in the church of Colossae that is being read. Later, the church of the Laodiceans is to be read there too. So you have the church of Colossae and you have the church of Laodicea. Clear distinction between the two. And then later on in the verse he says, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. And then finally, one more example, brethren. Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 11. Here we have a message from Christ to the different churches. Let me just read this for you. It says that Jesus says, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. And here they are, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna and unto Pergamos and unto Thyatira and unto Sardis and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. Here you have seven distinct local churches. All these churches in the New Testament we see were distinct from one another. He that was in one church was not of another. Now that's important. You see, we're all a part of the one universal church as believers. But when you speak of the local church, if you're a member of one local church, you're not a member of another. So let's say you're a member of the local church here. You're not a member of, let's say, the Mandan Baptist Church. If you're a member of the Mandan Baptist Church, you're not a member of Grace Reformed Church down in New Leipzig. There's a difference there. That's the difference between the universal church and the local church. Now, that is one important truth about the local church, a visible body of professing believers. Number two It is made up of those who manifest the evidences of being born again. In other words, those who manifest the fruits of regeneration. Also, it is those who have been baptized and who are accountable to one another. So the local church is to be made up of those who profess faith in the gospel and of those who have an accurate understanding of the gospel. And this accurate understanding is evidenced by the fruits of righteousness, which are the inevitable results of genuine conversion. They must give evidence that they are among the number of the elect. Now, brethren, you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 3, verses 3 through 8, right? He said it three times. What must be done? What must be true of a man if he is to enter the kingdom of heaven? He must be born again. Why? Because we're all born in a spiritually dead condition. Every one of us has to be born from above. We need to be born again of the Spirit. We, made to, we need to be made alive spiritually. Otherwise, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is an important point. I'm not getting off track here, but I want you to stick with me and you'll understand what I'm saying. One of the amazing differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is this. You could be a part of the Old Covenant and not actually be genuinely converted. So I'll just give you an example. You could be circumcised as a young baby, male baby in the Old Covenant, and not actually be saved. I mean, I mean, later as you grew up, you might reject God. Think of Esau. He was circumcised as a child, but he grew up, and he was simply an unbeliever. That could be true of members of the Old Covenant. Not so in the New Covenant. In the New Covenant, every member 
is a regenerated individual. And that's one of the differences between the two. And that's one of the distinctions that is made when you read about prophecies of the coming new covenant in the Old Testament writings. Let me just give you an example of this. Look with me to Hebrews chapter number 8. And we're just going to look at briefly verses 6 through 11. And this is very important when you understand the nature of the new covenant and and how that is important when we consider the nature of the local church as well. Now look at verse number 6 there in Hebrews chapter 8. Referring to Christ here, we read, But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is a mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. That's the new covenant. It's a better covenant than what came before it. Verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. So you have the first covenant, that's the old covenant which was made with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai when they came out of Egypt. But then you have the new covenant which came at the death of Christ, and that is a better covenant. Now look at verse number 8. For finding fault with them, he saith, now he's quoting now, he's quoting from the prophet Jeremiah. Behold the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, And I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Listen now. For all shall know me from the least to the greatest. You see, one of the issues with the old covenant is it could not be a means of fulfillment with the covenant that was made with Abraham. But through the new covenant, all those Abrahamic promises will be fulfilled. And you notice every member here now of the new covenant, this is one of the promises, will know the Lord. And that's very important when we consider the subject here of the local church. If members of the new covenant are only those who are converted, that means only such individuals are to be admitted into the church membership. You understand? It shouldn't be a mixed group of believers and unbelievers because unbelievers are not part of the New Covenant community. John Gill, the famous uh, Baptist preacher, commentator of some centuries ago, wrote this, that members of churches should be such who in a judgment of charity or in charitable discretion may be hoped that they are the chosen of God, the redeemed of Christ, are called, sanctified, and justified, and shall be everlastingly saved. So in other words, you don't know for sure, but they must give evidences in their life. Are they living as the Bible says a believer will live? Only such should be brought into the assembly as members. Those who believe and are saved, and then those who are baptized as an outward symbol, of having been dying with Christ and rising to new life, only such ones were brought into the local assembly as fellow members of the covenant. Just look at one simple example of this with me in Acts chapter number 2. You remember on the day of Pentecost, Peter is preaching the gospel. He's preaching a sermon to those there at Jerusalem. And what's the result? Many of them are converted. It says this in verse 41 of that chapter. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. So the gospel is preached. Many are converted. The evidence shows that, yes, they are repenting of their crimes against the Lord, and they are now submitting to Christ. So they're baptized, and then what? Those converts that are baptized are then brought into the church. It wasn't just a free-for-all. Anybody just come on in. It was those who were converted, those who had repented, those who were baptized were then brought on in. 
Then verse 47 at the end, praising God they were and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So what is the church made up of? Saved sinners, the redeemed people. That's who the church is made up of. Not only are local assemblies distinct from one another in the New Testament writings, but here's another important point. Members of local churches are distinguished from those who are outside of the fellowship. This is very important. There is a hard line distinction in the New Testament between members of the local churches and everyone else who is outside. Very important. For example, just look ahead there at Acts chapter 5. Here in Acts chapter 5, if you remember, Ananias and Sapphira had been put to death by God because of their sin. And look at the reactions here. Verse 11 of this chapter says, And great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. So you have a fear that was there amongst the believers because they had a sense of the holiness of God and the righteousness of God to see sin disciplined in this way. Look at verse 13. And the rest durst no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. So notice, just for a little bit, many of the people outside were unwilling to join up with the church. That's what you could say, in a sense, becoming members, joining the fellowship. They were unbelievers. They heard about what happened, and they didn't want anything to do with being in that group of people, you see. But you have a distinction here. You have those who are in and those who are out. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 12 also gives us another example of this. Now, if you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you have a man here in the church of Corinth who was living in unrepentant sin. And look at what Paul says concerning this situation. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? So you notice, there are those who are within, and there are those who are without. That's really important because so many today blur the distinctions between local and universal church, and they, they don't see themselves as being without if they refuse to be members of a local fellowship. Do you get what I'm saying? They have nothing to do with the local church, but they don't understand that in the New Testament, if you had nothing to do with a local church, you were considered to be without. That's very important to understand. Another important matter, believers join local assemblies by mutual consent. The original constitution of local churches is by such consent. Believers giving themselves unto the Lord, agreeing and promising to walk according to the ordinances and commandments of the Lord. That's when a local church forms. All who are afterwards added unto them are added by such mutual consent. No one can be forced into a church, nor can anyone be forced into it. No one has the right to come into a church and depart from it as he pleases. You see, it must be by consent. If one desires membership, it is the option of the church whether they will receive him based upon the directions of Scripture. So it's by consent. One must be willing to join himself with the assembly, and the assembly must examine the situation and welcome the person in if they are a believer. If not, and if that's clear, then that person is not to be joined with the church. They, of course, may attend the services, but they are not to be joined as a member of the fellowship. Let's go to Acts chapter 9 for a moment. I want you to see an example of this. This is all according to Scripture. Here we see Paul, who's still referred to as Saul, is recently converted. You remember he was persecuting the believers. He's converted, and not long after now, he's in Jerusalem. And the Jerusalem Christians remembered him and what he had done. But look at verse 26. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. Now look at verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way, and that he had spoken to him, 
and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he was with them coming in and going out at Jerusalem. So notice first, Paul comes to Jerusalem. He purposes to be a member amongst the church at Jerusalem. Now, what do I mean by being a member? He wanted to join himself with them. He wanted to be a part of the assembly. He wanted to be serving the Lord with that assembly. But right away, no, they wanted nothing to do with him. They thought, no, we know who you are. Who knows? They might have thought he was trying to infiltrate and cause some trouble. But Barnabas comes, takes him to the apostles, explains Paul's testimony. And then what happens? He's coming in and going out with him. That is, he's among them now. Now he has joined himself with that local assembly there in Jerusalem. You could say it, he has become a member with that local assembly there in Jerusalem, but it's by consent. Paul consented to join with them, and then the rest of the church took him in. So there you see, again, is an example of becoming a part of the local assembly. Now, another important aspect of the local assembly is this. There is an important principle, and that is accountability. Accountability. At the time when the New Testament scriptures were being written, to be a part of the universal church inevitably meant that you would be a member of a local church as well. There is a close relationship between the two. In fact, put it this way, you can search throughout all the New Testament. Not one Christian had the idea that I am a part of the universal church, so therefore I don't need to be a part of the local church in my vicinity. You never find that anywhere. In fact, listen to what Peter says again, 1 Peter 4.17, For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? So you have us and them. You see that clear distinction again? Us, that's we who are in the house of God. But then you have them, who? The believers outside? No, <laughs> it's the unbelievers who are outside. So you have those distinctions, those who are within and then those who are without. You see the same thing in 1 Corinthians 11, 31 and 32. Now, Paul here is writing about those believers at the church of Corinth. Some of them were taking of, partaking of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. And many of them were sick, some of them were weak, some of them had died because the Lord had disciplined them. Now, concerning that, listen to what Paul says. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. So notice, those in the local assembly were judged. They were disciplined. Why? So that they would not be condemned with the believers who aren't in the local churches? No, the world. So in other words, if you're not in the assemblies, how did they view the people who were outside of the assemblies? As being a part of the world. So there again, you have that distinction clearly made. Many passages in the New Testament speak of the necessity of accountability in a local church for all believers. This is God's design. God did not design the believers in the New Testament to simply acknowledge that they are part of a universal church, but have nothing to do with a Christian community or a Christian assembly. Look at Jesus' directions in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 18. And again, we're just, because of lack of time, we're just going through this quickly. There's so much detail here that we could consider but just, again, in keeping with our subject, look at Matthew 18, verses 15 through 18. These are directions that Jesus gave to his apostles. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. So notice, you notice a brother who's living in unrepentant sin. The goal is, go to him personally and see him brought to repentance. You keep it quiet. Don't spread this to everybody. Just go to him and see him brought to repentance. The goal is restoration in love. And if he repents, that's good. We've won the brother. If he doesn't, look at the next step, verse 16. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So again, the goal is not to spread it everywhere. You take with maybe one or two others, 
You have this principle that you even find in the Old Testament that must be established on the basis of witnesses. And if he repents, you've won your brother. If not, what's the next step? Verse 17. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. So you notice the next step, you bring it before the church. The whole assembly calls the man to repentance. And then if he repents, good, you've won him. If not, then what's to happen? He is to be put out. Now, ultimately, we don't know the heart. The goal of putting him out again is that he would repent and come, come back. But here's the issue. When you put him out, you are treating him as an unbeliever and calling him to repentance again. You're treating him as a publican and a tax collector. What is that? If he is outside of the assembly, he's out with the world. He's out in the realm of the unbelievers. So you see again the distinction. The local church, you have the believers. If you're put out, you're with the unbelievers. Verse 18, Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What does this mean? If biblical church discipline is practiced according to Scripture, Jesus Christ, the head of the church, approves of all that is going on. So this modern-day practice of someone living in unrepentant sin and they're disciplined out, let's say, of a Bible-believing church, and then they just go somewhere else, and that church is happy to receive them into the membership, that is not approved by Christ. If there was real church discipline that actually took place in his first assembly that he was put out of, that's very important. But that's a big problem that we have today. If someone is disciplined, they can just go to another fellowship, but that's not biblical. Jesus Christ approves when his church follows these clear directions. Now, it has to be disciplined according to Scripture. It can't be disciplined for something that's not really a sin, and we could get into all that. But you notice here the clear directions of accountability. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you see the same thing. If you would, just turn there for a moment. Now, here, again, as I mentioned earlier, you had a man who was living in unrepentant sin, but th the steps here weren't needed for one to confront him and then witnesses confronting him. Why? Because everybody already knew about it. So Paul just said the whole church must now put him out. Now look at verse 5. What was the issue? What were they to do? To deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So again, put him out. He's out now in the realm of Satan. So again, you see the distinction in and out of the church. And the goal is that he may be saved, that he may repent, and that you know in the day of the Lord Jesus, when that day comes, that he's with there. He's there, and his soul is really saved. Verse number seven. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump. So there again is the accountability. Put him out. And again, one of the goals of church discipline is not just to see the, person, the brother repent, right? but to keep Christ's church pure. That's very important. So that leaven must be put out. Verse 11, But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one know not to eat. And again, if you read the whole context, Paul's not saying that you can never spend time with unbelievers, but he's saying if there's a professing brother who is living unrepentantly in these sins, you are to treat him in such a way so that he would hopefully repent. And then verse 13, look again. But them that are without, God judgeth. They're outside the assemblies of God's people. They're in the world. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Put the one out. So there again, you see that. When you were outside of the local assembly, you were viewed most likely as an unbeliever who needed to repent and come back in. Now, thankfully, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, it seems that this same individual did repent, and then look what happened there. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 8, Paul writes, Sufficient to such a man is this punishment, which was inflicted of many, so that contrarywise you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. So he was put out, now he's repented, forgive him, 
Affirm your love for him and bring him back. There's the restoration. So Christ's church remains pure and the brother is restored. Even in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, we see there that the pastors or the elders of the church are also accountable, just like any other member is. But if they are accused of sin, it has to be, again, on the basis of witnesses. But they also are accountable, just as the rest are. Jesus Christ wants his church to be pure. You can see that in Acts chapter 5. Why did Ananias and Sapphira, why were they put to death? For purity in the church. But now oftentimes in a Bible-believing church, if the church is disobedient, if they fall into this act of just playing church and they won't actually function biblically and discipline someone who is living in unrepentant sin, at times Jesus Christ will purge the church himself. We see this in the New Testament. Do you remember in the book of Revelation chapter 2, the church of Pergamos was tolerating sin in their midst? And here's what Jesus said, repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Later on, the church of Thyatira, that same chapter, there is a woman in the church living in sin and influencing others to follow her. It says, and I gave her space to repent of her fornication and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. So we must remember that. That Jesus will purge the church oftentimes when a church is unfaithful to practice discipline themselves. As head of the church, he exercises authority over all of his churches. Why does he want his church to be pure? Why at times will he purge himself? Well, it says in Revelation 2.23, All the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts. When this happens, it is a testimony to us as believers that, yes, Jesus knows every one of us. He knows our hearts. He knows what we're doing in secret. And the church is affected by everything that we do. And Jesus knows that. So this is biblical accountability in the church. So we've looked at that. Now, number three, we mentioned that the local church is those who assemble together for worship. They partake of the Lord's Supper. They pray together. They read scripture together. They're to be instructed together in the word by the elders of the congregation. There's a reason that we do all the things that we do when we join together as a local church, or when those of you here who are members of other churches, when you join together in your churches, there's a reason for it all. It's not just the song time that is the time of worship. It is all worship. When we sit to hear the sermon, for example, we are saying, Lord, you are worthy that we focus and pay attention to what your word says. That's just an example. But these are also all means that God uses to sanctify his people, to grow his people. That's what the Holy Spirit uses. Here in our church, in our doctrinal statement, we have this written. The primary purpose of the people of God is to glorify God. One of the primary ways that God is glorified is through the corporate worship of his people. God is calling out of the nations a people for his own name to assemble together in order to praise him and glorify him with hearts and voices. Reverent corporate worship is not optional for the church. It is one of the very purposes, and it manifests on earth the reality of the heavenly assembly. You see, God has a purpose. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen generation, but why were we chosen? Why were we brought out of darkness into light? One of the primary reasons is to glorify God, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's why he brought us out of darkness, that we might praise him, that we might glorify him on the earth, and so that others see the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34, we have there the practice of the Lord's Supper clearly laid out for us. This is what we are to do when we gather together. 1 Timothy 2, 8, we are to pray and the men lead in those prayers. 1 Timothy 4, 13, we're to have the public reading of scripture. That is why we read scripture together when we are gathered. 1 Timothy 3, 2 and Titus 1, 9, we see that there is the teaching, the instruction of the word that is to take place because the bishops or the elders, the overseers, the pastors have to be able to teach. They have to be able to instruct the congregation. Let me just give you a few examples of this. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we see there that the believers continued steadfastly in these things. In the breaking of the bread, that's the Lord's Supper, in prayers, 
and in the apostles' doctrine. So you have there the Lord's Supper, they were praying together, and the teaching of the word was going out in the assembly. Another example, Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. Listen to this. And upon the first day of the week, that's the Lord's day, the first day of the week when Jesus rose from the dead. Upon the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, there's the Lord's Supper, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. So you have the gathering on the first day, you have the Lord's Supper, and you have, again, the preaching of the word. I would also add a few more. We have the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You see that in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Also, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. That is to take place. The taking up of a collection, 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 2. We have that. The believers take up the collection, and they use that for the funds of the church. We have the fellowship of the brethren and the taking of our meals together. We see that Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 46. We have that, that fellowship that is all to take place. Acts 2, 46 says, And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. You see, you see that fellowship, that love that existed between the brethren there at the church in Jerusalem. Let me just name three more responsibilities. We see that we are to meet one another's needs in the church. This could be mean taking care of the widows, taking care of the elderly, taking care of those who are struggling financially with legitimate needs. You see that in 1 Timothy 5.3 and Acts 2.44, meeting one another's needs in that way. Secondly, we are to provoke one another to love and good works. Acts 10.24, that's iron sharpening iron. That's why we gather together and have that fellowship. And then you have, we are to preach the gospel, baptize converts, and make disciples. You see all that in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and Acts chapter 1, verse 8. That, that is the responsibilities of the local church. And that's why we gather together, so that we can fulfill these duties and responsibilities that the Lord has given to us in his word. So these are all teachings in scripture concerning the local church. I mentioned reformed theology in the local church. This is all according to what so many teachers down the ages have taught us, the reformers, even all the way back to the church fathers. Now, before we're done with this session, let me just mention a few practical things. Number one, I'm just going to have two of them, but number one, I'm going to quote again from our distinctives documents in this local church and then say a few things. God's only religious institution on earth is the church. And for this reason, we strongly encourage all believers to be accountable to a local church and to faithfully serve Christ in that church. It is unbiblical to refuse to be accountable to a Bible-believing local church. It is also spiritually dangerous to reject the need of being shepherded by biblically qualified elders. You see, it's not parachurch organizations, it's not home groups, but it's an ordered local church that we are to be a part of, where the word is preached, discipline is exercised, and the ordinances are practiced. That is what we are to be a part of. In light of that, brethren, there are two errors that we must avoid. Number one, we know of those who are simply aloof. They, they, they're not a part of a church at all. And they, they might attend here, they might attend there. And some of you who are pastors in here for quite a few years, you may have experienced this. You know, you have some that come in, and it's, it's just as if, you know, thank you. Uh, thank you for gathering together. Thank you for preaching the word to us. That's, that's it. No responsibilities, no accountability, no gathering with the saints, nothing. This is so unbiblical, as we've already seen in our session this morning. We see at the time that the New Testament was written the believers knew nothing of this practice. But for those who were in the habit of not gathering together often with the saints, the book of Hebrews does give us some counsel. Now remember in Acts chapter 2, it says there that the believers, what they were devoted to these things. They devoted themselves. Literally, they bent their schedules so that they could be devoted to these things that Christ has commanded them to do. And so that they could be with the brethren and fulfill those responsibilities that they have. But listen to Hebrews 10.25. We are to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. So you see, while the New Testament was written, he had this problem then too. 
Oftentimes, some of the saints weren't gathering together often as they should have. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. The more and more we see the day of judgment approaching, the more and more devoted we should be to the local church. The more and more we see the society around us collapsing, let's just say that, Western civilization, the more and more we see it should move us to, yes, I should be devoted to the church. It is our duty to glorify God, number one. And also, it is our blessing. It is for our own spiritual health when we gather with the saints. Ignatius, one of the early church fathers, 105 AD, wrote this. He, therefore, who does not assemble with the church has even by this displayed his pride and he has condemned himself. Irenaeus, another church father, 180 AD, or AD 180, said this, Those, therefore, who desert the preaching of the church call in question the knowledge of the holy presbyters. It behooves us, therefore, to avoid their doctrines and to take careful heed lest we suffer any injury from them. So we should flee to the church and be brought up in her bosom and be nourished with the Lord's scriptures. And of course, there's talking about heretics who are separating from the church. But you notice they viewed those who are separated from the church as not really being Christians. It's quite interesting. Second problem, there was also those who were attenders only. That is, there were those who, in our, I'm talking about in our modern day, who attend church services, but they never take that step to actually be members of that local assembly. The problem with that is you cannot, as a Christian, fulfill your responsibilities that we've already seen in our session this morning. You just simply can't do it. Maybe some of you have seen this. Have you ever seen somebody who wanted to have a Matthew 18 situation where they're calling a brother or sister to repentance, but they themselves are not part of any local church at all? So it's like, okay, so what are we supposed to do here? So you say they're in sin. If they're in sin and they don't repent, we're to bring this before the church. What do you mean? Are we supposed to get on the loudspeaker and broadcast this to the whole universal church scattered throughout the world? Is that what we're supposed to do? You see, there's no local church there. If there's no local church there, how are you supposed to hold anyone accountable? See, that doesn't make any sense. There's so much confusion here amongst so many believers in our day. But we have to go back to what Scripture teaches concerning these things. Listen to Hebrews 13, 17. Here's just an example of a responsibility of those in the church. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. So you see the pastors there, we'll see this in the next session, they have a responsibility to the congregation. But if there are Christians who say, well, we're not going to be a part of any congregation, well, how can you obey that text of Scripture? See, you can't. So you just say, well, I'll be a Christian, but these texts, now, that's not going to do that. That doesn't make any sense. So we see this is so necessary. Who are their pastors? Those who say that, well, we're Christians, but we won't do this. Well, who are your pastors? That's a really good question. Irenaeus again said this, it is said in the church, God has set apostles, prophets, teachers, and all other means through which the spirit works. Those who do not join themselves to the church are not partakers of these things. Rather, they defraud themselves of life through their perverse opinions and infamous behavior. Think about that. You know, there's such an imbalance today among many, let's just use the term evangelical, let's just use that term, where they may look at the Roman Catholic Church and they may recall, you know, you're in trouble if you miss the Mass on Sunday and so forth, and it's, it's a sin to many, but yet as evangelicals, they just jump out to a whole nother extreme. They said, well, you know, yeah, we didn't go to church this Sunday. You know, we're not a part of that assembly, and we weren't gathered on the Lord's Day. It's, yeah, it's, it's not a sin. It's, you know, we're not Catholics. But you see how you have one balance, an imbalance one way and an imbalance another way. You see how the church in the New Testament, in the early church in the second century after the New Testament was completed, as I mentioned before, viewed those who were without as not being real Christians. 
because they didn't demonstrate the fruits of a genuine Christian. So I'm not condemning anyone today who's not a member of a local church as on their way to hell. But what I'm saying is, is that we need to really look at these things and ask, how imbalanced have many become? And what does scripture really say about these issues? John Gill, again, he wrote this, unless persons voluntarily give up themselves to a church and its pastor, they can exercise no power over them in a church way. They have nothing to do with them that are without. They have no concern with the watch and care of them, nor are they entitled thereunto unless they submit themselves to one another in the fear of God. They have no power to reprove, admonish, or censure them in a church way, nor can the pastor exercise any pastoral authority over them, except by agreement they consent to yield to it. Nor can they expect you should watch over their souls, as he that must give an account, having no charge of them by any act of theirs. If they refuse to be members of a church, how can they be shepherded? You see, the, the, the elders, the pastors of a local church, they're responsible for those who are members, who have by consent said, yes, I will be a part of this local assembly. So, brethren, we must avoid the errors of simply being aloof or as simply being attenders only. This is a major problem, sadly, also in the modern conservative homeschooling movement. And look, I'm all for homeschooling. We have a book back there. I think it's all gone now. Biblical education. And we lay out very clearly there what is a biblical view of education. A child should receive education that is according to a biblical worldview, not a secular one. Nevertheless, you can practice that. And if you're not a part of a local church, that doesn't mean that you're not being very heterodox. You still are. It's easy to fall into pride. We could say we've seen truths in this world concerning this and in the word concerning education, but what about the church? You see, we can't get imbalanced there. Second and last practical point, brethren, really quickly, we must have a love for the church. We must have a love for God's people and a love for this institution that God has ordained. Remember I mentioned earlier what Paul said in, in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 through 28, all the burdens, all the trials that he went through, the shipwrecks, the beatings. But what again was on his heart? The churches. You see, the world can't understand that. The world won't have that priority. We must. For us, we must be able to bend our schedules, readjust our lives so that regularly we can meet with the brethren, so we are accountable with the brethren, that through that assembly we serve the Lord and we preach the gospel and we seek to make disciples. That must be a major priority especially if we're raising children, too, or either way, if we're raising children or not, but just a practical point, it should be a testimony that your children can say when they're older that so often when the assembly was gathered, we were there. Now, sometimes there's work, sometimes there's providential hinderings and things of that nature, some travel issues, weather, I understand that. But they could say my parents always made the effort to regularly gather with the saints. Very important testimony. You notice oftentimes children that are raised in homes that didn't have that commitment to the local church, look at the fruit of it. Most of them, you can look at it in the next generation, look down on almost all Bible-believing churches, want almost nothing to do with any church. Oftentimes they're very unsound, oftentimes don't have a solid foundation laid for them, make decisions in their young adult years that are completely unbiblical. You see, this is so important. We must have a respect for the way that God has ordained things to be. Acts 4.32, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul. Colossians 2.2, Being knit together in love. Ephesians 4.3, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We should have a love for the church in this way. And brethren, this takes godly maturity. It really takes a, a humility. It really takes an adjustment in ourselves to be willing at times to be offended, to, be, to, to learn how to bear with others. See, this is so important, but this is humility before the Lord and saying out of love for the Lord, I love his people because it's through his people that I can see his glory and shining forth. And it's, it's through the institution of the church that he has ordained that we can glorify him, that we can accomplish his will in the world. 
and that we, of course, can become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So I hope this has been a blessing and a benefit. Let us pray together, and then I'll call Brother Howard up. Let us pray. Lord, in this first session, we have just endeavored briefly to look at what your word says about the church. It is so important. Lord, give us a heart for your word. Give us a heart for the church. And we know we see it in your word. There are problems in churches. There was problems in the church of Corinth. There was problems in the church of, at Galatia, and in Thyatira, at Pergamos. This is just the case. In a fallen world, this is the nature of things. But Lord, help us to just be humble. Help us to be submissive to you. And out of love for you, to seek to have our lives in order. To hold what is important to you up first. And to really be committed to those things that you want us to be committed to. Please help us in that, and we pray that this would be the case for many in our own day, that you would bring more and more to a knowledge of what your word really teaches about the church, just a basic that your people understood for uh, 2,000 years. Lord God, help each one of us, we pray in this, and we pray that you might be glorified. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.